You are listening to List It, the show where me and a guest rank things in pop culture and just kind of in life. And I'm really excited about my guest today because you're going to find out some really interesting places. My guest is a co-founder of one of kind of the coolest media outlets uh, around. Like, it's seriously something that if you have a curious mind uh, like me and are just fascinated with interesting things in interesting places, then you probably are already familiar with Atlas Obscura. Dylan Thuris is the co-founder of Atlas Obscura. He's also the co-author of the Atlas Atlas Obscura book. He co-hosts the Atlas Obscura YouTube series, 100 Wonders, and he is the host of the brilliant new podcast, which has fueled many of my recent kind of runs and little road trips lately, the Atlas Obscura podcast. Dylan Thuris, welcome to List It, man. Thanks, Jesse. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm excited to chat. I'm so excited because we're, we're going to be talking today about f- uh, five places that feel like they're from a fantasy film. And I feel like you are the, a, a person who are uniquely equipped. Like, I could probably throw out a bunch of categories and off the top of your head. You could probably say five scariest places, five, mm-hmm. you know, kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, just most thrilling places. You know, Dylan, tell people how you kind of got into, I guess, if I had to, like, obscure um, uh, travel uh, journalism, how, how <laughs> yeah, did you kind of yeah. find that field? Yeah, it was not, it was, it was uh, by accident, maybe, is the right answer there. Uh, so, so I've been doing this for a while now. Atlas Obscura started in 2009, and it, it essentially started as a kind of um, art project. My co-founder, Josh Foer, and I, I was about to take, when we started talking about it, I was uh, leaving to go live in Hungary for a year. Okay. Um, and we we started, we worked on a previous project together and we shared an interest in kind of, I don't know, I guess you could say the esoteric and like interesting bits of history in the world. And it was also that like early time on the internet when like that yeah. was kind of what the internet was about. You know what yeah. I mean? It was just like blogs of people being like, this is some crazy stuff I found out about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. wow, world's a weird place. Uh, yeah. And we started talking about travel and how there wasn't really a good travel resource for like w- the kinds of things that we thought were most interesting. Uh, and that could be everything from like a small, unusual museum to like a piece of folk art, like someone who like dedicates their life to building a castle by themselves to... Um, to maybe it's just like a beautiful natural phenomenon. Uh, but we just felt like there was a surprising lack uh, in kind of traditional travel books and travel media. Yeah. So, okay, so what if what would happen if we made like a website and we put all of the most interesting places that we know about on it and like asked other people to submit theirs? And that's basically how, how Atlas Obscura started. Uh, we, we didn't really have a business plan we didn't yeah. really know what to expect but uh bit by bit it 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 turned itself into basically you know the the major pursuit of of both of our lives i mean this is what we've been doing since we were kind of in our late 20s uh you know yeah having having spent so much time you know visiting and kind of thinking about interesting places has it kind of transformed just how you encounter the world as some, you know, like if I'm traveling, yeah. you know, usually I'm pretty locked into, okay, point A to point B in between. I'm not really all that kind of concerned about. It's just, I'm, I'm just thinking about my destination and, yeah. and, you know, all the logistics. Has it changed how you think about the actual act of traveling? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I, I think one of the things that that became quickly apparent is all of travel is kind of an act of myth making. Like mm. like when you think about a place you want to go, you're like, oh man, I really want to go to Paris, or like I really want to go to China or Australia. Like you have some image in your mind of what you think that's going to be, what you feel like is there. And even when you're thinking of a specific place, it comes with all of this kind of mythology about it. Like some place like Plymouth Rock in the U.S., right, is like basically built out of mythology. Like it's just a rock that (laughs) some guy, like 150 years after the pilgrims were there, the oldest guy in town was like, uh, my dad told me that's the rock where they <laughs> yeah, landed. Yeah, that yeah. is why a million school children a year go and look at this random rock. There's like yeah. no historical documentation. So point being is like what I what I think it's changed for me is is that so much of what we think of travel is actually about storytelling and the kinds of stories we tell ourselves mm. and that there are way more interesting stories to be told in way more places than we think. And you don't have to go very far to find something mind-blowing, but you have to kind of be willing to do some of that myth-making and like not just rely, you know, it's not a very good experience to go to many of the biggest tourist attractions in the world anyway. And so I think like when you give yourself permission to kind of open up and go explore other places and kind of figure out how to tell their story and engage with the myth of that place. Like that's a really exciting experience. It, it is I, my, my grandparent, when I was a kid and I would hang out with my grandparents, they would, you know, those like signs. And I don't know if this is a regional thing, but it was like these historic markers that have like a little kind of write up and it, oh, it yeah. could just be an open field or, or, you know, like an old house or something like that. But every time they'd see one, they'd want to kind of check out and see what it says. And I just remember that experience really changed the way, I just thought about my own hometown of yeah. like, wow, there's some deep, interesting history here, interesting places, if you're just willing to kind of go there and look for it. Totally. And and every place has like a deep bench of, yeah. of stories. And sometimes they're like hard to get to for whatever, you know, it takes, they're not always obvious on the surface. And, and the places we're going to talk about today are the kinds of places that are like, obviously, like you don't need someone to decode it for you. You're like, yeah, oh, that is awesome. crazy. Yeah. That is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but but sometimes the places that are a little more subtle are, are even more satisfying. I remember there's a, there's a little pond in like a commercial park between boring office buildings in Japan. And you'd walk right by it. You wouldn't think anything about it. But it just so happens that all the fish in the pond are descended from fish that went to space on one of the early oh, space. No so they're way. all like, and it's not, you know, whatever. It's just like a little, when you know that and you're like, oh, those are the space fish. Like that yeah. that makes you feel differently about that pond. It's a cool, so I, I sometimes really like the places that are boring on their exterior and kind of yeah. more interesting when you dig in. Yeah. Well, the the ones that we're, we're going to talk about today, like to your point, are not boring on the exterior. Uh, <laughs> these are going to be crazy because you're going to tell me about five of your favorite places that feel like they're from a fantasy film. So I'm really excited about this. Uh, uh, Dylan, kick us off your list. What is what is the first one on your list of places that actually feel like you're in Lord of the Rings or an episode of like Loki in an alternate yeah. universe or something? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to start at number five and like work down the perfect, list. I perfect, feel like perfect. That's, yeah. that's a good. Oh, okay. yeah. So, uh, and this is a very, like, this topic is very good for me because I also, I guess maybe no surprise, I'm like a big genre guy. I read a ton of fantasy and science fiction. I like grew up loving that stuff. You know, 
for me, the kind of, you know, talking about myth making, like, all this goes together, like, like sort of finding places that feel like, oh, how does this exist in our world? That sense yeah. of like wonder and surprise, like that is really kind of always what I'm after. So uh, okay, number five on my list is it is here in the US. It is in uh, Nevada, as the Nevadans say. Uh, and it's it's kind of at the edge of the desert. It's like one of the last places you see before you really are off on like that lonely stretch of desolate highway. There's yeah. no gas stations for another 200 miles. And it's in a town called Tonopah. Uh, and there's not a lot in this town, but one of the things that you'll drive by uh, is a place called the Clown Motel. <laughs> the and Clown Motel. <laughs> it's called the Clown Motel. And there's a couple of things you need to know about the Clown Motel. Okay. So it, like I said, it's kind of the last stop before you're out in the desert. And yeah. it's a little, you know, two-story kind of roadside motel with um, a very heavy clown theme. It's got a giant clown on its sign. It's like a clown riding a motorcycle. If you go into the lobby... There are like 700 plus clowns in this <laughs> tiny room where you check in. Every room has its own clown on the door and a cl- picture of a clown. So this to me is like deeply out of uh, like a Stephen King yeah. book, right? It's like kind of ridiculous. And the, and the thing that is really the like mwah, the cherry on top is that it it is directly next to the Tonopah Minor Cemetery, which is a old abandoned cemetery of everyone who like worked, lived and died in these like brutal Western mines. And like you walk around and there are these old little wooden graves that are really simple, uh, you know, and like the grave markers are like, I don't know. They're pretty rough. They're just like, you know, died in a mine. Pneumonia. <laughs> lost the will to live. It's just like a legit, you're like, oh, no. It's like, like you're playing Oregon Trail. Like dysentery. Yeah. Died so, fording the river. Yeah. These are the two. So these, you know, Clown Motel next to the old abandoned miner cemetery. And for me, it's just like hard. If you wrote that into a science, into a, into like a horror fantasy yeah. thing, it would be like a little bit of an eye roll. You know, you'd be like, uh-huh, okay. Sure, yeah. But there yeah. it is. There it is. So uh, I love that place. I stayed there overnight. I um, had a nice <laughs> Like I had a nice night. It was fine. I think Were there other guests there? Because it makes sure. me curious oh, of yeah. like what what kind of guest, you know, would seek out a play like would seek out a night at a clown. I guess that's sort of the charm of it, is is you have the story for the rest of your life. But y- you know, it, it was a pretty hopping place. There were there were definitely a bunch of other guests there. Uh some ra- some like rowdiness happening outside in the late in the night. Uh, yeah. I think there's a few kinds of guests. I think there are people who came there because it's the clown motel and they're like into that i think there's guests who are like legitimate like truckers like long haul folks who are just like this is my stop this is where i'm gonna stay before i i have to keep going and and then i think there's just kind of like it's cheap man it's like 30 bucks a night i think then there's just like party people who are like meandering through the desert just getting into it uh and I think, uh, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a mixed it's a mixed bag. Do, do do you know anything about the origins? Like, did the proprietors or they were they like circus people, or they just thought, hey, let's do a clown motel? They uh, apparently they bought the place in the '90s. It had you know existed previously, uh, and 
the owner was like just into clowns, like thought yeah. they were cool, <laughs> thought they were great and started collecting them and it started filling up the place. And like, that's just how they themed it. Yeah. It was not done in irony. It was not done tongue in cheek. And, and also like clowns reputations have like really soured over the last yeah, 20 yeah. years. Like they've gone really downhill. And I, yeah. and I, I kind of feel like this is, this is a, a going to be a controversial take, but okay. Like 40, some like 40% of people say that they're afraid of clowns. Yeah. I don't buy it. I think yeah. like people are afraid of heights, right? Like people are yeah. afraid of heights. Their knees get weak. Their heart starts. Like, people are afraid yeah. of snakes. Like real fears. I feel like people like saying you're afraid of clowns is, is like the socially polite thing to do. If you're yeah, like, yeah. I love clowns. I think they're so funny and amazing. <laughs> you will quickly find yourself like uh, a social pariah. Yeah. So I feel like, I feel like there's like a lot of social pressure to be like clowns are scary. And obviously we have like tons of media uh, that reinforces that. And I feel like clowns get kind of a bad rap. I'm like here to re rehabilitate clowns <laughs> reputation. I, I appreciate it. My favorite, my favorite clown fear joke in pop culture. It was like on an episode of like modern family or something where like Phil Dunphy, who had like a clown fear in the show, it was a surprisingly dark moment where he's like, I don't know where I developed the fear of clowns. Maybe it was just pop culture. He's like, maybe it was that time I found a dead clown in the woods when I was a kid. <laughs> like, you know, it was like, nobody's fear is actually rational. Nobody yeah, had yeah. some traumatic experience with the clown. Right, We're just right. been conditioned to, to, to fear them. But totally. okay. Clown motel in Nevada. What do you got next for us, Dylan? Okay, number four on the list is uh, another place I was lucky to go check out back. This is 10 years ago now, uh, but uh, it's in Venezuela, okay, uh, in the northern part of the country, and it's called the Everlasting Lightning Storm, or wow. the Relampego de Catatumbo. And what it is, there's a couple places like this in the world, although this may be the most extreme example, where for something like 300 nights out of the year, there is a constant like barrage of lightning and there's like, there can be like many strikes, like a second. It's, hmm. it's, it's just this kind of light show. What's really interesting is that because it's so high in the sky, you often don't hear anything. It's often hmm. almost silent. So it's just this like cloud to cloud, lightning, 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 wow. and this crazy sort of light show. And it has to do with the, geography and geology of the space, but it's, it's like, you really want to put, so, and mostly it happens above this giant lake, Lake Catatumbo. Yeah. And, you know, it would be the perfect place to like put your evil fortress, you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. uh, it's, it's was also a little bit of a sketchy trip. Um, because like even back then in 2010, uh, security in Venezuela was like fairly questionable. And, you know, we got, uh, Josh and I were traveling and we got to the lake and, uh, and it had already gotten dark. It was starting to get dark. And so we'd planned to have a, uh, a fisherman basically take us out to this Island where we were going to okay. stay for the night. Uh, we were doing a story and I was working on a video about it. And, um, and when they got there, they basically were like, we don't want to take you because we're afraid of bandits like we're afraid of river bandits which is like a thing yeah um that that might like uh, stop the boat and uh we were like oh okay well like how are we going to get out there and they were like don't worry we we these teenagers are going to take you instead <laughs> and we were like okay but how does that solve the bandit problem yeah and they were like don't worry 
they all have guns. <laughs> we, gave all, we gave all the teenagers <laughs> guns. And we were like, we are not getting on this boat. A hundred percent. We are not getting on this boat. So we yeah. just stood at the shoreline and watched uh, watched the lightning from there, which like you, you can see it from the whole area. It's, it's incredible. But um, yeah, the atmosphere of just like a place where there's like nonstop lightning is yeah. very like good fantasy fodder. And, and is it pretty uninhabited? Like obviously if there's river bandits and guides, there's people somewhat in close proximity. But is, the, is that area pretty uninhabited? No, there's like a big town close by. Really? Uh, it's, it's yeah, no, it's it's um, it is not way out in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's close to sort of uh, a bunch of people and they can see from the town. You can see it there, too. So like kids grow up there with like basically oh, lightning in the sky every night which would be a pretty wild place to to grow up that is that is so cool and also even just that aspect i feel like the savviness of being a traveler i mean sometimes it's like an obvious sort of like danger like hey there might be river bandits up there or you yeah. can go with teenagers <laughs> with guns but even even for people that are kind of like will hear this podcast and read some of your work and they want to go to some exotic places but they might not be in sort of the most conventionally kind of safe places. Yeah. What are, what is your kind of hard and fast rule when you know, it's like, okay, this is, this is the indicator. I probably shouldn't go too much further down this path. Yeah. I think there's a couple answers to that question. I mean, I think you first have to ask yourself kind of, uh, a traveler's Hippocratic oath. Like is your trip, think about like what impact your trip will have and like whether it will do harm. And that can come in a bunch of different ways that can, that can be an environmental question. It can also be like a political question that yeah. gets tricky because sometimes traveling to places with really autocratic governments depending on how you do the travel can be really good it can be good yeah. for locals it fun like money goes to individual people and businesses yeah. and it like opens up connections which is which is good uh you know so i think there's like that's like a first question just kind of like have you thought about the implications of the place you want to go how you're going to go and like maybe where your money is going to go that's like a part of it on the personal safety side you know i definitely think like i'm not some gonzo like i'm a nerd like i that my my deal is not like you know i i've gotten to do some cool travel in my time but there's a lot of people who've traveled way more widely than than i have and like mostly I, yeah, like I'm a nerd who gets super excited about like digging into the research on these things. And, and I, yeah. and I think like, I don't, I'm not really into the world of people who are just see travel as like a constant kind of accumulation of bragging rights or yeah. like Instagram photos or whatever. Like, I just think it's like a little bit of a destructive approach yeah. to travel. Like it's a little bit of a consumptive. It's like turns the world in, into a stage that you're like the actor on. I just don't really, yeah. I don't know. I, so I, I think, I think, and then on the safety stuff, like just use common sense. Like don't, you know what I mean? If it makes yeah. you uncomfortable, like don't do it. Like, yeah. you, you know, it's, it's, there's always, there's a big world out there and, and you don't have to always like push yourself to the edge, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I appreciate that perspective too so much because it, it does feel like a lot of kind of travel trends are very transactional. Like, yeah. oh, I get to go to this landmark, take this picture and kind of get that, yeah, like that that that, that Instagram cred and it just feels, but I feel like with, with your guys' approach, it's really about an, just an appreciation for sort of like the wonder of not just kind of the the, the world, but also humanity, that, yeah. that the, the people that have made these places, you know, their homes or, or you know, totally. I, I love that approach that you guys take because it really, 
feels like it's not. And again, I'm not think I don't have any particular person or you know outlet in mind. But it doesn't feel you know sometimes you're like, man, that feels just so kind of soulless, like the, to travel yeah. in a way where I'm just going to get the the good picture and the t-shirt, you know. Wh- but this really is an approach that's like developing appreciation for what the world has to offer. Yeah. And you don't have to go everywhere. There are places like I know I'm never going to get to, like, I'm never going to get to, I'm not going to go to Snake Island off the coast of Brazil for like a whole host of reasons, like both responsibility wise, also like, you know, whatever it's filled with snakes, but like, uh, but like I, there are places where I just know I won't go, but that doesn't make me not want to know about them. You know what I mean? Like knowing about the world is part of that experience of, of like, giving yourself that sense of wonder and excitement and and then like also giving yourself permission to like i don't know just explore like something that's 100 miles from you and be like yeah. oh this is really interesting like i learned all about this this is so yeah. cool that is cool all right so we have venezuela's everlasting lightning storm at number four what do you got for number three for us dylan yeah yeah and and it's funny because I just said all that. And then my choices are going to make me sound like <laughs> this super, like now it's like, oh, gee. But I had to choose things that were like yeah, no, the yeah, most yeah. maximally like exactly, crazy, exactly. impressive. Yeah. So, okay. So this next one is, I went to this place on that same trip, actually. Uh, some of my favorite places uh, I've ever visited came from this trip across uh, South America. And and this is a place in uh, Peru. It's about three hours from Machu Picchu uh, in a little like really little town, uh, especially when we went there, it was like not well known at all. Um, and actually kind of suffering from that needed more tourist infrastructure, more sort of tourist dollars, which are all getting focused only kind of on Machu Picchu and Cusco and and that area. And so, uh, this place, uh, I guess if I had to sort of say what kind of fantasy or adventure story it's from, this is like a quintessential, it's like a definitely a thing that you would have seen in an Indiana Jones movie. It oh, like cool. really is a quintessential kind of like adventure like uh look and that's because it is this big hanging rope bridge. Mm. Uh it's almost a, a hundred feet across. It's uh called the Keshua Chaka or the Last Incan Bridge. Wow. And it's crazy and amazing for like a bunch of reasons. So besides kind of looking like you know, this swaying rope bridge with like bits of vines hanging off of it. And like the slats have separated a bit and like, it's, you know, it moves as you walk on it. It's like, besides sort of having that look, uh, the other thing that's incredible about it is it is woven entirely out of grass. It is made, uh, a hundred percent from this local, it's kind of like hay material Mm. that grows in the mountains. And, what happens is that this material doesn't last that long. It actually really can only survive for about a year. Oh, so wow. each year, the four villages that live uh, near Keshuachaka, they come together in this big celebration uh, and they cut down the old bridge. Well, actually, first they use it to like string the first parts of the new bridge. But yeah. basically, they, they, they have to take down the bridge and everyone is responsible for weaving a certain amount of this hay into rope and they weave these they, uh, we met this guy victoriano the bridge master who oversees this project uh, and his father was the bridge master wow. before him and and so on and and he showed us you basically take some water 
you you wet the you wet this kind of straw material, you hit it with a rock to kind of soften it, and then you're able to start sort of twining it together and 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 make this kind of uh, material, which then you can weave into ropes, and then you can weave those ropes into these huge like thigh sized cables, and those become the main pieces of this bridge. So every year they cut down the old bridge, they weave a new bridge, and they restring it up. And the last thing that makes this so incredible is that this is the reason they call it the last Incan bridge is it's basically a functional piece of the Incan empire. It is made Mm. today in the exact same way it was made 500 years ago when an Incan highway system ran across the entirety of South America. It was like one of the largest road systems of all time, basically up there with the Roman road system as like true crazy ancient infrastructure. And, uh, and and because it's so there's so many gorges and and valleys the 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 Incans developed these incredible technologies around um, fiber and weaving and they were able to create suspension bridges that were bigger than anything anyone had made or seen when when the Spanish you know came to to Peru and saw these they were absolutely terrified of them because they'd mm. never crossed a bridge of that length or or quite like that. It was like a totally yeah. different, you know, rather than a stone arch, it's this big hanging swaying thing. And so anyway, uh, just a super amazing place. What, what was it like crossing it in terms of, you know, cause you was like, it's to your point, like, you know, very few people actually have like a fear reaction when they see a clown at the, at the yeah. circus. Most people, if they, the prospect of <laughs> crossing a giant <laughs> bridge, that has been around for hundreds of years as woven from grass, you know, at least would have that kind of uh, some butterflies in their stomach while attempting to cross it. What was it like actually on the bridge? We came towards the closer to the end of the season. So the bridge had already sort of deteriorated some. And okay. so some of the like fine details, uh, when it when it's first made, it's really like there's a uh, a floor of basically sticks that are kind of like put you know along the whole bottom of the bridge, and it's got like side rails made of rope. And um, by the time we got there, it was like a little bit more in disrepair, so it's like at an angle. There's like more <laughs> kind of holes, but the bridge is really strong. It's really yeah. strong, and it feels you know we I, you went. I moved across it slowly and like definitely felt like a certain, you know, pang of being up yeah. high, but it felt good to cross it. I went back and forth it a bunch of times because it's sort of just like this astonishing thing. And uh, yeah, I it it was awesome. It was great. I like, you know, I wasn't worried that it was going to snap. I and I, yeah. and I didn't think it would have taken some really foolish moves on my part, I think, to like go through to yeah. like make my way down to the the river below uh which definitely would have been a bummer but well well yeah. one of the cool things too and, and it's not i you know i think this is an obvious example and not to you know kind of sound corny but they're you know the the cool thing about travel especially tra- especially travel to kind of you know obscure more kind of obscure places is that you learn how you know location really affects community and relationships mm. and how people see the world. And there's something beautiful about the idea of communities coming together once, once a year to literally build a bridge together, yeah. like that everyone knows their role that, you know, this is something that we'll all kind of com- communally benefit from. Uh, but the literal bridge building is, that's just a beautiful, you know, I, I say metaphor, but it's not a metaphor. They're it's, actually it, doing it's, it. It's, you know? it's both. Yeah, no, totally. And it's also a bridge to their past, like literally and metaphorically. It's like all of this kind of, you know, it's, it's, 
Yeah, and and it's funny because there's half a mile up, there's a big steel bridge that cars use to cross. And it's like, it is now, they don't necessarily need this in the same kind of like structural way that it, they once did, but it provides a real, um, it's really meaningful to everyone who yeah. who lives near it. It's like a very, it's a real point of pride. And, I, and yeah. I'll say this too, and there's a couple other examples that where, where this is the case. Um, you know, travel works in two ways. You hear a lot about the places that get like destroyed by travel, right? Like Venice yeah. is like so overrun with tourists. It needs yeah. to like, and and so, and you know, so there's a lot of, that's a big concern. Over tourism is a big problem in the world. Something that's like a little bit more quiet, but happens just as often or really a lot more is incredible places just disappear because there's no, there, there isn't an economic incentive to keep, you know, a cultural practice around or to, um, save a, a, you know, heritage place. And, and there's a lot of pressure, you know, sometimes there's pressure from other industries to just, you know, whatever, like clear cut a whole, a whole place and turn it into, you know, palm oil, uh, uh, fields or whatever. And so the power of travel to the power of travelers to sort of choose where they're going to go and not go to the places where there's a bajillion people kind of crushing in there, A, you're going to have a bad time anyway. But to go and find places that are able to benefit from the travel dollars that you're bringing to that place is like a really powerful, um, yeah. powerful thing. Like we all you know, have on our power to really like help preserve great places and take some of the pressure off of places that are sort of like uh, being overloaded by, by yeah. people. That's a, such a good perspective. And especially one that, you know, even for people that are kind of doing it for the gram, like, yeah. hey, it's cooler to go someplace that, you know, is, is you know, special and unique and you have this experience than, you know, another picture of, and I'm not bashing the Eiffel Tower, but it's that, you know, it's right. probably one of like five places where you're like, oh, that's one or, where everybody or goes. Or even the know? same picture that every other Instagrammer has taken, right? Like, it's like the, yeah. the, the sort of follow on effects. It's like, man for for a vibe that is all about like being really like unique and intrepid some of the yeah. stuff looks a lot the same guys <laughs> yeah. like you know but i don't know i think it's it's hard yeah. hey watch this i'm gonna hold the camera in a way and it looks like the eiffel towers right between my two right. point, you know, yeah. fingers yeah. 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 yeah or like i'm gonna go stand on this rock and make it look like i'm out here like alone like looking at this like vast scene <laughs> but like behind the camera there's like a line of like 300 people waiting to do the same yeah. thing. And like, yeah. I just feel like that honest, like a little bit of that honesty of being like, this is the, the, the collapsing that barrier between the like presentational and the real is like, good. It's, it's, it's refreshing because frankly, yeah. you can see that same picture where it looks like the person's alone like a hundred times, but like, yeah. it's kind of more interesting to be like, oh, here's the, here's the deal, you know? Yeah. All right, so number three, Peru's last Incan bridge. What do you have for number two for us, Dylan? No, number two is a place I haven't been yet. I was almost going to go, and then the pandemic hit. Uh, but yeah, in, in um, spring of of last year, spring, whenever, yeah, uh, spring, uh, time <laughs> the, the, is meaningless. The before time, times, time, yeah, the yeah. before anyway, times, yeah. Uh, we, I had a trip planned. We run, so Atlas Obscura runs trips all over the world. We run trips to some of the places I've, I've just talked about. Um, and, and we had a trip planned to a place that I've been trying to get to for 10 years. It's a place that we added to the Atlas right away. Uh, and as far as a fantasy place, it's like pretty close to Mordor. It's like pretty, cool. it's like 
got that vibe for sure. And yeah. uh, it's a place called the Gates of Hell in Turkmenistan. Wow. And we'll be running that tour again um, soon, actually. We've got, we've got tours going out in 2022 uh, and already booked up. Uh, and so what it is, is when we take the tour, we go all over Turkmenistan, we see all kinds of stuff. But definitely one of the big draws is this place, the Gates of Hell, sometimes called the Darvaza Gas Crater. And it, it, imagine this flat desert, this enormous flat plain and then in the middle of that desert, a whole 300 feet across about. Uh, and, you know, at night, if you're going towards it, you can actually see the hole because it is emanating red light up out of it. Uh, and that's because the hole is on fire. And wow. the hole, this giant hole, this giant pit inside of the hole has been on fire for nearly 50 years. Wow. Uh, or just about 50 now, 2021, 1971. Yeah, 50 years. Uh, and it it looks like a natural phenomenon. It looks a little bit like you're peering into the rim of a volcano or something. Yeah. Um, except that there's no like mound. It's flat. It's just yeah. nothing. It's just a hole in, in the desert. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is not actually a natural occurring phenomenon. It is a giant industrial accident. So- mm. In the 70s, uh, Soviet geologists were out uh, in the Turkmenistan desert digging for natural gas. They found it. Uh, <laughs> but when their rig uh, punched through the whole top of the desert, basically the whole thing collapsed because it was like an enormous pocket. Wow. And so now they had this giant hole and the hole was leaking natural gas. The desert, this desert is like the fourth largest reserve of natural gas in the world. And oh, so- wow. These Soviet petroleum geologists did like what honestly I think was the sensible thing. Like, I think it was actually the sensible thing. They lit the hole on fire. Uh, <laughs> and usually these things burn out, you know, in a, a couple of weeks or a couple yeah. of months. Uh, but this one, not the case. Still on fire right Man. now as we speak. They're on fire. Um, and yeah, there's just it, it was one of the first places we added the Atlas and it was like this example of like, this is one of the craziest places I've ever seen, heard about. The story is really interesting. How can how come nobody knows this exists? Yeah. Um, so it was part of one of the, you know, when we wrote the first 300 places, that was like one of the first, that was on the site the day we launched. If you were to, for, because my from my understanding, you know, Turkmenistan is is not a country probably a lot of people have traveled to, you know, be, yeah. because for, for a variety of yeah. economic and political reasons. Yeah. But uh, if you were to go, how close to the brim of the gates of hell can you, like, can you actually, like, oh, yeah. and, and is it is it an organized thing? Like, are there, or do you just kind of got to find your way out there through whatever means? You could means? do either. I mean, you want to go with the tour guide because it's, yeah. it's really out in the middle of the desert. You got to, like, drive on a, you know, four-wheel drive or, or a buggy or whatever to get out there. Um, so you want to be with someone, a guide. I wouldn't just kind of walk into the desert. That would be a bad plan. But, um, yeah. Yeah, now there's like a little, tiny, I think in 2019 or 2020, they put up a tiny little like wooden two post fence around the, okay. the edge, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's like completely um, like just for show because you can yeah. just walk right past it. Uh, 
Yeah, you can go as close as you want. You can fall in if you want. It's oh, it's man. not like there's a yeah. like big, you know, um there is a, you know, there is a tourism industry around it, but it's it's very small. Um, because only about five, six thousand people travel to Turkmenistan each year. It's it's one of the least traveled countries in the world. And partially that's because Turkmenistan's visa system is incredibly arcane and difficult to manage. If you send a picture for your visa application where you're smiling, it's like automatically rejected. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So they're not drawing in the 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 the, the Instagrammers there. Yeah. Not not many. Some though, and the and the uh, and the gates of hell are a part of that. I mean, the, the, and the thing I'll say is like Turkmenistan is a good example of one of these places where it's an autocratic government, um, repressive, not good. Uh, yeah. The flip side of that, though, is that like their tour guides and the people who work there are like genuinely want more contact with the outside mm. world. And they want to yeah. show the world that Turkmenistan is not just sort of the, you know, whatever they see on on TV about the sort of craziness yeah. of the 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 government regime there. Uh, and that it's like full of natural beauty. And, and, you know, if you're able to do that trip in the right way and, you know, you make sure the money is is going to sort of local uh, operators, yeah. it, it's, it's, I think, ultimately a really good thing uh, because I think Turkmenistan particularly – could benefit from a bit more um, awareness of the outside world, and the outside world yeah. could like benefit a bit from a bit more awareness about like what's going on in Turkmenistan. Because mostly, yeah. it's like easier to keep a repressive regime going when like no one's paying attention, yeah. and like no one can really communicate with each other. In, in and anyway, so yeah, I, I I think there's a good way to to do that trip. I mean, I, I yeah. wouldn't we wouldn't be running the tour if I didn't if I didn't think so. Yeah. All right, so uh, gates of hell number two. I feel again that's a high bar to cross for number one. You have a literal, <laughs> eternally burning hole yeah. in the earth yeah. in the middle yeah. in a remote desert. So uh, everyone you know, take their special ring and, and get ready yeah, to throw it. That's especially what I'm for the do lens I... of like a fantasy film. It's like, <laughs> yeah. well, that almost seems literally like where if I had to dispose yeah. of a you know an existential evil, I would think I would go right to the gates of hell. Yeah. yeah. So number one, number no, one, on your number list. one is 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 a little bit more positive than the gates of hell it's a very okay. uh yeah and this is legit like a tolkien fantasy elvish thing like it is unbelievable and what happened is so back, going all the way back to 2009 we start the site people start submitting stuff and we had yeah. this question like is this gonna work like is anyone even gonna send anything good like are we going to run out of stuff? Are we going to like, after like a year, we're going to be like, well, we got them all. Wonders of the yeah. world. <laughs> Done. Um, a few months into running the site, we got a submission. It's a short little thing. Basically said, I run a small bed and breakfast in Cherrapunji, India, which is the wettest region in the world. They get okay. more, they get like 33 inches of rainfall a year. Wow. It's crazy. Um, and they said, in this region, there are these things that are absolutely incredible and nobody knows about them. And they're disappearing because they aren't being taken care of. They're being sabotaged. And the post then went on to describe uh, the living root bridges of Cherrapunji. Wow. And what they basically are, are, well, they're living root bridges. They're grown from the roots of two... Uh, ficus elastica trees, the roots are woven together over the course of about usually 10 or 15 years. Um, 
And over time, they form these unbelievably strong uh, bridges over uh, these incredibly fast-flowing rivers. Because it's so wet there, in the rainy season, the Chirapunji has um, these gorges that they're like they're like two thirds or three fourths as deep as the Grand Canyon, but like one fifth as wide. It's filled with these like incredibly deep, terrifying gorges that have been carved wow. by this rainfall, you know, for yeah. for for millennia and whatever, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, and and so it means that like traversing in the area is really. Uh, dangerous, even for like the the local like Kasi tribe uh, that lives there. Uh, and uh, the the thing about building normal bridges is that they don't work at all. They get basically if you build a bridge out of wood, it just rots in a few years. The humidity level destroys it. If you yeah. if you build it out of you know bamboo or something, it just washes away. Like they so they're they're at some point and they don't know exactly when, but hundreds of years ago for sure. Uh, Somebody figured out that you could grow bridges out of the roots of the That's living trees. So and, cool. and it's not just bridges. They have living root platforms, living root ladders. There's like a whole – they use the roots uh, on the banks of rivers and weave them together to create almost like a retention wall, right? So it doesn't mm. – so the bank doesn't wash away during yeah. the, the big rains. And so the entire region is this like piece of living infrastructure. And wow. the really the beautiful kind of end note of this story is that at the time, like I said, they were in real danger, and there was almost nothing about them on the internet at all. There was like this very hard to find documentation of these. Yeah. Um, uh, but we were able to basically confirm that they did exist, and that and that uh, and the person had sent photos in, and um, so we were you know pretty early to start talking about them. But over the last decade, they've become you know better known. And it's meant that there's a foundation was started a few years ago that's uh, all about saving the root bridges. Oh, and it's cool. I, on the show, we have an episode about the living root bridges. I talked to this guy, Morningstar Kangta, who runs the, the root bridges foundation, is working to build new root bridges. There's like a tourism industry that's supporting them. There are all these old root bridges that had been like forgotten that are like way out in the jungles. And, and this reporter, uh, went out there and and over the couple of years basically took photos of them all and documented them. And now there are like, some of them are being maybe rehabilitated. There's talk of like a big root bridges trail. It's just like a good example actually yeah. of, the, of the power of attention and tourism to save something that is as magical and unbelievable as living infrastructure, like a forest yeah. where the, the, where, you know, the paths and the bridges and the ladders are, are being grown from the trees themselves. Like what's, I mean, it's just the it's the coolest thing, kind of. Yeah, that that is the coolest thing, man. And how how accessible that is is it for if you were if you were traveling through, you know, obviously India is a massive, yeah. you know, country. But if you were in kind of the region, how how accessible would it be to go see these for yourself? Relatively, it's it's a you know, it, there's a couple that is are are easier to get to. Um, yeah. the stuff that's farther, that's like more remote. You you're talking about some real hiking. I mean, even the close ones, you're going to do some hiking and it's hiking at, uh, in hot, really humid, you know, weather usually it can. So it's not like, not necessarily like a total breeze, but it's, it's also like, yeah, you can get to them and they, and now the state of Meghalaya, which is the part of India they're in, it's like very aware of its, of their, 
value to tourism. And also like the whole region is super magical. There's, we, we, we have an episode coming out um, soon about another village where every mother gives their child a name song. So mm-hmm. like along with what they call a paper name, you know, yeah. whatever, Jeff, Ronaldo, a lot of the kids are named after soccer stars, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They also have a song that their mothers sing. Oh, and man. when they want them to come home, like at like six o'clock at dinner time, all the mothers come out and sing their children's songs, like the same moment. And all the kids wow. like hear their songs come running back to their moms. And uh, so the whole region has this kind of like, uh, I mean, just absolutely like beautiful set of cultural practices it's a matrilineal society so like uh, property passes down the the line the family the mother's family line anyway it's just a cool that is cool yeah well well dylan man these are all cool places and they all like i said you really nail it with the with the fantasy thing because (laughs) all of these seem like things that don't exist in our reality but the cool thing is that they do and i feel like especially i love i love all of your work and it's been really fun to to listen to your pod um especially as we're all kind of coming out of a time where a lot of us haven't been able to travel or kind of be out in the world in a way that you know maybe we 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 had prior to the pandemic and but what you're doing, I feel like, is really providing people with an opportunity to at least, um, you know, kind of scratch that itch to kind of learn more about the world, even if they can't see it firsthand. Yeah. It's it's really great, you know, secondhand accounts of of how magical the the world really is out there. So I appreciate your work, man. Thanks, Jesse. It's been fun talking about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, listen, I definitely encourage uh, all my listeners to go check out the Atlas, Atlas Obscura podcast. It's my favorite kind of podcast, one that is, it's not only incredibly well-produced, it's also, it makes you kind of curious and satisfied at the same time, which are, in my opinion, kind of the best types of shows. So, Dylan, great job on the show, man, and thanks for coming on List It. Yeah, thanks. Anytime. Really fun. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of List It on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast asks you to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.